Well, let's turn once again to Luke's Gospel, the second chapter, and we will be reading the first seven verses. On Christmas Eve, Lord willing, we will be taking up the remainder of Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Let's pray. Our Father, what sacred words we are about to read, and I am privileged to expound and proclaim. With all my heart, Heavenly Father, I believe that I need this gospel. My own feeling within my soul is even more than those to whom I preach. This minister is just an unprofitable servant. But how we long to see Christ exalted, and so we pray together for the work of the Holy Spirit to help us to understand insofar as we can the grandeur of the passage, the wonder of the Savior's birth, and all that he did when he came to save us from our awful sins. And for those who may be here today who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, we would ask that the Holy Spirit would be at work sovereignly, savingly, to open those hearts to hear and to believe in Jesus Christ, freely offered in the gospel. These things we humbly ask in the name of the only Redeemer of God's elect, the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom we now read. In his name we pray. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. The word of the Lord, please be seated. People of God, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. What beautiful simplicity. Yes, 
but infinitely deep. We cannot plumb the depths, but once again, join with me and let us try. Let us just try. Let's single out four themes about the birth of Christ that we find in these seven verses. The first one is the all-important point of history. History. We find in this text this reference to Octavian, to Caesar Augustus, and to the governor of Syria, Quirinius. Now, there was a time not that long ago, and some people probably still say these sorts of things, in which critics of the Bible said, Luke just altogether missed it. Quirinius was not governor at this time, and we have no reference to this registration that all the world should be taxed. But then came along the archaeologist Sir William Ramsey, who discovered not only in inscriptions on stone, but also in papyrus and other places, references to Quirinius and his governorship and references to this registration. You could go to A.T. Robertson's article, The Census in Luke's Gospel, and you can find a brief but thorough summary of all of those details. Well, God's people believe the Bible because it is God's Word. We believe these things even before these things were historically confirmed by William Ramsey and by others. But what I want you to see is this stress right from the start on history. Do you remember how Luke's Gospel begins in chapter 1, in the very first four verses? Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so right from the beginning, Luke tells us, I'm a historian. And I am going into the depths of the details so that you, Theophilus, who will be receiving this gospel, and the second part, the book of Acts, will understand that all of this really did happen in time and space. It really is history. And the point that I want us to see and understand is, if there is no history, there is no gospel. J. Gresham Machen wrote in 1915 a very important article on the relationship between history and faith. And he continued to underscore this throughout his ministry as he battled modernism in the Northern Presbyterian Church. And Machen said, give up history and you can retain some things. You can retain a belief in God, but philosophical theism has never been a powerful force in the world. You can retain a lofty ethical ideal, but be perfectly clear about one point. You can never retain a gospel. 
For gospel means good news, tidings, information about something that has happened. In other words, it means history. A gospel independent of history is simply a contradiction in terms. This was illustrated very beautifully by Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield in an article. It's in the first volume of his shorter writings. It's only a two-page article in which Warfield talks about Christmas carols. We like children to sing Christmas carols. They like to sing Christmas carols, but sometimes it's hard to find Christmas carols that we like children to sing. And he was in a music shop, and he saw a couple of pieces of music. One of them particularly gripped his imagination. It was filled with all of the details that we find about the birth of Jesus Christ and the wise men and all of these things that we find in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel. And Warfield scratched his head. That name, the author, Lucius Hopkins Miller. I know I've seen that name somewhere. And so he bought the sheet music and he took it home And he went to one journal that sent him to another journal, and finally he found out who Lucius Hopkins Miller was. Lucius Hopkins Miller, who had written this Christmas carol to be sung by children with all of these things that we find in Matthew and Luke, didn't believe that any of it happened. He didn't believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. He didn't believe that there was a Virgin Mary. He didn't believe that he was born in Bethlehem of Judea. He didn't believe any of the things that we find written in Luke or in Matthew's gospel about the birth of Jesus Christ. And so Warfield asks, shouldn't we believe what we sing? He wanted these children to sing all of these things and yet not to believe them. And there are ministers in pulpits today I'm sure all through our state, certainly all through our country, who are standing in pulpits and who are reading passages such as this, who are perhaps even preaching things that relate to the virgin birth, but they don't believe it, relate to the birth in Bethlehem, but they don't believe it. And to them, it doesn't matter because they're just great symbols. And in the end, what matters is that Christ is in your heart. Now, that's the point. There is no Christ in your heart if it is not the Christ of the Bible. History matters. History is so important that if there is no historical bedrock underneath our faith, there is no Christianity, there is no Christian faith. And this book moves on to his obedience to the law and the Lord Jesus going to the cross and his being raised bodily from the tomb. And there are the accounts, the resurrection accounts. And there is the ascension of Christ and all of the history that is found in the book of Acts. And of course, Luke's important contribution to us all the way back in that introductory remark about his investigation of history is that if there is no history, there is no gospel. Now, I'm preaching a book that is God's divine word. It's trustworthy. It is reliable in the whole and in the part. 
Sometimes it requires a good deal of patience for us to wait for the next historical issue to be illuminated by those discoveries in archaeology, but don't wait for that to trust this book. It comes from the hand of God, and all of those historical details were wrought by the God who has given us this this book. No history, no Christian faith. But who controls history? Who controls the outworking of history? Do we live by chance or is there a goal to which all things are moving? Well, that leads us to the second theme we find here. And that second theme is the theme of providence. Providence. History. Providence. Providence is God's superintendence of his predetermined history. So we have here a decree by the Roman Senate, a registration for taxation. Joseph and Mary that seem to be caught in the world of the world of international affairs. This methodical Augustus, for we know him to have been methodical, decided to take a census for the purpose of taxation. But it's a great inconvenience for many people, but especially it is a great inconvenience for the very expectant Mary, who must travel a long distance to get there. Was God out of control? Was history out of God's control? The thought is blasphemous. Psalm 75, verse 7, He putteth down one and setteth up another. Daniel 2, 29, He removeth kings and setteth up kings. Augustus was emperor at this time in history because God put him there. And further, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he moveth it whithersoever he will. God was providing a greater king than Caesar Augustus, a greater governor than Quirinius. Remember that Augustus' reign was noted because of its peace, the the famous Pax Romana. And some New Testament scholars think that Luke wants us to see that under the surface of what Luke is writing here, we should see that the Lord is establishing the reign of peace through the prince of peace. Isaiah 9.6. Now, Augustus has no idea that the Lord is using him this way. No idea that his policies and desires for Rome serve the true king of kings and the establishment of his universal reign. And I think that's why Christmas, one reason that Christmas should be overflowing with blessing for you and your Christian life. It is overflowing with the comfort of providence because God is God. The God who ruled and reigned then is the God who rules and reigns now. And he is still involved in that painful thing through which you go. He is still involved in that mysterious event He is still involved in that perplexing problem that you face. Are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Then you can know, ere into being I was brought, thine eye did see, and in thy thought my life in all its perfect plan was 
ordered ere my days began. And no one can stop God's decree from unfolding in history. And he has a marvelous plan for you, believer, and that is conformity to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Are you living only for what can be seen? We walk by faith and not by sight. The believer walks by faith, not by sight. And you are in God's hand, brother, sister, in that hard thing that you face. Inseparably related to history, to providence, is fulfilled prophecy. And that's the third thing we see in the text. Inseparable from God's decree and its unfolding in God's superintendence of history, His rule of history, is the fulfillment of prophecy. There could be no foretelling of Christ's coming without God's decree and without providence. Imagine a prophet standing up and saying, I'm speaking God's word and the Messiah is going to be born and he is going to come into this world. But we live in a world of chance and it might not happen after all. If we live in a world of chance, my words might not be fulfilled. No, nothing like that happens. The Bible is a predestined book. God is working in this world to accomplish what he decreed in eternity past. When the prophet Isaiah, for example, stood up and proclaimed that Christ would come in Isaiah 7.14, in Isaiah 9.6, or in other places in his prophecy, Isaiah 53, there was no chance that it would not happen. All of the details of history were ordained of the Lord to bring about our salvation through the Messiah. Prophecy is fulfilled because of God's decree, because of his providence. So there's this journey to Bethlehem, which was 90 miles south of Nazareth. That's a long way for an expectant woman on a donkey. The Davidic ancestry is stressed. In verse 4, and Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. All the way back in 1 Samuel 17, twice it is underscored. This is in the David and Goliath segment of 1 Samuel when he speaks to King Saul. Twice he speaks of himself as a Bethlehemite. What is being stressed here is covenant history. That God is saying, I have since before the beginning of time determined to save my people. I have determined to have communion with you. And I will fulfill my purpose of redeeming you from your sins. Psalm 89.34, my covenant will I not break nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. But this place had no significance in the eyes of the world. Don't you think about that every Christmas when you think of Jesus born in Bethlehem? That we read in Micah 5.2 as we did in our reading this morning, but thou Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judea, yet out of thee shall he come forth 
who is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. God said, Bethlehem will have significance. The world sees no significance. Joseph must register there because the Roman government said so, but the Roman government said so because God rules. And he arranged the birth of Christ in the place that he determined that it would happen in fulfillment of his promise to save you from your sins. Once again, we see the providence of God. Once again, that God keeps his word. Once again, that God has not changed. Once again, that the triune God, believer, determined, directed, and governed this for you. And once again, that he continues to direct all things for his glory and for your good. History, providence, prophecy and its fulfillment. But there's a fourth thing we see in this text. And oh, how wonderful it is. It's humiliation. The humiliation of Christ. Mary is very great with child. And she travels with Joseph. And the point in stressing that they are betrothed is that the marriage is not yet consummated. And once again, there is a stress in Luke's gospel on the virgin birth of Christ. And they arrive and the days of her being with child are fulfilled. And Mary delivered her child and wraps him in swaddle. Children's swaddle were strips of cloth that were tied on limbs to help keep them straight. I don't know, maybe the swaddle was from her own veil. She laid the child in a fatne, the Greek New Testament says. That's a manger or a stall, or it can even mean a feeding trough. There was no room in the inn, which was probably a con, a place where caravans would come through and and you would pay just a little bit, and you would be able to stay there overnight. It is mentioned, by the way, in Jeremiah 41, verse 17, and they went and stayed at Gurith Chinnam near Bethlehem, intending to go to Egypt because of the Chaldeans. So we have travelers staying somewhere near Bethlehem which also seems to be referenced in 2 Samuel 19.37. So this con, this inn, may have been there all the way back to the time of David. What was God doing? Redeeming the world. But who could see it? What is being stressed here? What does the Lord want you and me to see? That this was God's own son, but Mary's little baby. That she took this little baby in her arms, and this is how near God has come to us. That this is God, the second person of the Trinity, who came in the flesh 
and nourished from his mother's breasts, that this is God incarnate, your salvation wrapped in swaddle, that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God Himself, very God of very God, as we confessed this morning, came into this world and assumed our nature. But also, He assumed our condition. The larger catechism of our standards, He came in circumstances of more than ordinary abasement. He came to save sinners who experienced the effects of the fall and to be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, that He might be our great High Priest. So do you see the loving heart of the Father for His people here? Isn't it an infinite condescension that God would come down and down and down and down and that He would become man? dwell among us and be touched with the feelings of our infirmities and that the crutch would lead to a cross and that there he would bear the hell of his people and that there he would bear the eternal weight of God's almighty anger against sin that he would know and experience the aloneness of it. That what we owe that we could not pay, that only he could pay, he paid. By the sacrifice of himself and the shedding of his blood. That God is a consuming fire. And this baby would grow and bear that consuming fire as our substitute. God's inexpressible indignation against our sins, He would know as our propitiation. So we go to a passage such as Micah 5.2, but thou Bethlehem Ephrata. But we cannot sever Micah 5.2 from Isaiah 53. The one who bore our sins and offenses and through whose chastisement we are healed. Alfred Edersheim, that great Jewish Christian scholar who wrote that massive volume, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, actually two volumes, now you can get it in one. 1,200 pages, I suppose wrote a book that's not well known that I've enjoyed through the years, Prophecy and History in Relation to the Messiah, in which Edersheim says, the prophecy, and he's talking about Isaiah 53, the prophecy speaks not only of sufferings, but of conquering, and of conquering by suffering. Now suffering is human, conquering is divine, but to conquer by suffering is theanthropic which means only the God-man could through his suffering conquer our sins and iniquities. Who is this 
It's so beautifully put in the various confessions of the church. Beautifully put in Article 39, Article 2 of the 39 Articles, I should say, when it says, the Son, which is the Word of the Father, begotten before or from everlasting of the Father. Not as essence is begotten, if you've been in my class. This is the relationship between the Father as Father and the Son as Son. When we say begotten, we do not mean He had a beginning. He had no beginning. He is God. But there is an eternal relationship between Father and Son as Father and Son. He goes on, The very eternal God and of one substance with the Father took man's nature in the womb of the blessed virgin of her substance. So that the two whole and perfect natures, that is to say, the Godhead and manhood, were joined together in one person, never to be divided, whereof is one Christ, very God and very man, who truly suffered, was crucified, dead, and buried to reconcile his Father to us, and to be a sacrifice not only for original guilt, but also for the actual sins of many. Profound, isn't it? It is infinitely deep. You see, only he who is God and man in perfect union could storm the citadel of hell and conquer it for us. And he did. History. Providence, prophecy, humiliation. What utter humiliation that God the Son would become man and go to the cross for us. As Calvin put it, the situation would surely have been hopeless had the very majesty of God not descended to us since it was not in our power to ascend to Him. You could never have ascended to God, not even as a creature before the fall, after the fall in our sin. We could never have ascended. God came down to us. So what do we do with this on this Sunday before Christmas? Well, the first thing that needs to be done is to believe it. We need to believe Him who came to save sinners. We need to trust in Him alone. We have nothing to offer. Do you trust alone in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who became man to save us from our sins? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Have you trusted in Christ? Believe it. Believe Him. And then, believer, we should be filled with awe. Somewhere in the works of John Owen, I think it's in volume 1 in Christologia, Owen says something to the effect... The more we Christians meditate upon things that are high, things that are deep, things that are hard for us to grasp, the greater we will grow in our Christian walk. And that's true. We should be filled with awe. 
and believing and being filled with awe, then shouldn't it transform my life? Shouldn't it transform your life? How you think, how you act, how you live, what your choices are, how you view sin, how you view grace, shouldn't it transform your life? Something else we should do. We should ask ourselves the question, why would he do this? Why? Well, we know that he did it for the glory of the Father. He did it for the salvation of his people. We couldn't be saved in any other way. To put it another way, let each of you take this to himself as I do to myself. He did it for me because he loved me. It was for the love with which he loved that he came. And why did he love me? Well, not because of anything in me. I was a rebel, a hell-deserving sinner. Why? He loved me because he loved me. Not because of anything in me. He loved me because he loved me. Thomas Watson, the Puritan. He was born of a virgin that we might be born of God. He took our flesh that he might give us his spirit. He lay in the manger that we might live in paradise. He came down from heaven that he might bring us to heaven. And what was this but love? If our hearts be not rocks, this love of Christ should affect us. Behold, love that surpasses knowledge. Amen.